Hello, and welcome to Within Normal Limits, COPIC's podcast featuring discussions of patient safety in the modern healthcare world. I'm your host, Eric Zacharias, a risk manager and patient safety consultant for COPIC, as well as a practicing internal medicine physician. Thank you for listening and helping us further COPIC's mission of improving medicine in the communities we serve. So joining me today on Within Normal Limits, uh, we're pleased to have Alan Limbitz, who is the Chief Medical Officer of COPIC, as well as a family medicine physician with uh, many years of experience uh, working in the emergency department. So Alan, welcome to Within Normal Limits. Hi, thank you. What we're going to do is I'm going to start out with a, a case review, and then we'll talk about some general cases as well as an opportunity to lay the groundwork for a discussion on informed refusals and specifically, you know, how do you protect your patients? How do you protect yourself? And how do you reduce the likelihood of lawsuits, uh, likelihood of lawsuits uh, when a, a patient decides for a, a, a care path, which you don't think is going to be in his or her best interest. So this, this case, uh, it starts out with a 50-year-old gentleman uh, noted sudden onset of excruciating pain uh, in the temporal region of his head uh, when he stood up and and he and he fainted. So you know, right away, this is a, a high-risk scenario. Uh, he was noted to be unconscious by his family when this occurred. And uh, in the emergency department, he related that uh, this was the second time uh, that this had occurred. So, Alan, you've spent so many years working in emergency departments. When people come in like that, uh, what, uh, what's your level of, of concern of somebody who gets blinding headaches and passes out? Well, yeah, I mean, that would be one of the major things that we worry about, particularly from somebody who doesn't come very often. And, and I get the sense from this patient that he was uh, even almost coerced to coming in. His, his family members made him come in. He didn't want to. Yeah, exactly right. And and the case goes on. One of the first concerns that he expressed was not so much what's going on with me. It was, uh, gosh, I don't want to have an excessive hospital bill. I don't want to have an extensive and expensive uh, workup. And uh, again, with your experience, is that something that, that comes up when you're seeing patients in the, uh, in the ER? Uh, absolutely. I agree. Um, and, you know, we can debate whether that's a, a, a hallmark of an advanced society or not, that the first thing that pops in somebody's mind when they have a catastrophic medical situation is, how much is this going to cost me? Uh, we'll save that debate for another time, but at least let's just say it does occur, and it's probably not optimal uh, for the uh, for the medical care. And uh, this this case continued, uh, where on exam uh, he was noted to have substantial pain. Uh, his neuro exam was was actually uh, unremarkable, and they did do a gait exam, and they did do a posterior circulation exam. So I'm I'm pleased with that. Uh, because, uh, as as you're well aware, we do see a lot of uh, patients with neurosymptoms where a posterior circulation exam is not done, and those uh, posterior circulation strokes are are missed. So that's very positive. Uh, throughout the course, uh, 
you know, the, the ER physician stated, you know, quite concerned. You know, you've had two of these uh, bad events, and uh, I, I think we should do a more extensive evaluation. And the patient was fairly adamant, uh, I don't want to do that. So the, I really want to go home. And the physician said, well, we could miss something, put that in the note, and uh, gave the patient some pain medications, some fentanyl. The pain went away and uh, went home for, uh, for follow-up uh, evaluation uh, as, as an outpatient. And then, Alan, I know you know this case. Uh, subsequently, I believe the patient had a large subarachnoid hemorrhage and uh, did, did not do poorly. I can't remember if he expired or not, but I, I believe he did. Um, and, and did not go well, and, and then the family wound up suing the emergency department physician uh, who was, you know, probably a little bit taken aback because made all the right recommendations, yet uh, the patient declined to do that. The patient was was probably competent. And uh, so let's let's analyze this a little bit. Uh, why do you think this wound up uh, in a uh, in a lawsuit? So I think the issue after the fact, after the bad thing happens, is that um, for whatever reason, there becomes a little historical revisionism. I mean, uh, and it, oftentimes we our documentation does not capture exactly how concerned we are, how adamant we are about what they need to do, and how uh, whether or not this patient understands and has the ability uh, to understand and make a bad choice. Um, you know, adults with uh, medical decision-making capacity can make informed decisions that are not in their best interest. But when then something bad happens, then the family members either weren't in the room or have a different recollection of, uh, of that event. Uh, it, they become pretty difficult for us to defend, even when the doc was doing kind of what they wanted to do. And I, I think we lose track in the shared decision-making world sometime of the fact that yes, the decision is shared, but the information and the expertise is not symmetrical. Uh, the, the physician or the provider has the information, has the expertise, has the experience to determine that this is one of those things that keeps you up at night and you ought to be worried about. And that, needs to be conveyed as easy as as uh, thoroughly as possible so the person can make an informed shared decision even if it's not in their best interest and you know retrospectively on this case it was difficult from us uh, we we think that the doc did all those things but the documentation wasn't there and the family members uh, now with a uh, with a with a dead parent with a dead parent or a dead spouse uh, are, who can't speak for, for what happened in that room, um, it becomes a he said, she said, and we don't win those very well. Yeah, it's, it's tough to, to blame the victim and, and certainly not a, not a winning strategy in front of a jury. So uh, let's use that as, as a segue into 
the physician in this case uh, probably was was thoughtful and certainly credible in saying I told the patient I wanted to admit him and, and do an evaluation and put in my note I would like to have you come in for a further evaluation but probably wasn't enough and this uh, leads us to this uh, concept of the informed refusal form so let's have you maybe, again, I know you did, probably did a fair number of AMAs. Uh, why don't you compare and contrast, I'm going to use my strong CME language here, compare and contrast uh, the uh, informed refusal with the uh, against medical advice concept, maybe the scenarios when you would use them and uh, how you make the form functional for you. Yeah, great. And I, so AMA tends to be, more combative, more argumentative, and tends to be uh, my way or or the highway. It's and patients tend to be sort of flagrantly non-compliant, and docs usually uh, whether the form gets signed or not, um, there is there is no further medical care that happens post AMA. And what I guess I would say is there is an in-between format, just like we use informed consent pre-procedure. We can use informed refusal, and the two elements are super important. One is that the patient is competent to refuse, but only competent to refuse after they've adequately gotten the information. So it almost follows this informed consent in that um, there's an assessment of their ability to make decisions, and then there's a, there's a description of what you want to do. Um, there's a discussion of the alternatives, the risks, and the benefits. And the nice part about this is it doesn't have to be combative. It can be caring in, in, a, in, a, in a format. And if the patient is competent and they understand and they choose to decide other than what your advice is, you don't have to say, I'm doing nothing for you further. You can say, well, okay, you don't want option A. I need to tell you why option A is so important to me. I'm writing this out for you in this form. Um, I need you to sign it so you can, and you can come back and we can always go back down option A if you want. And then uh, once you pass on option A, I'll still take care of you. I will go to the next best option. It is several fold things happen as a result. One, if family members are involved in those, when you use the actual kind considerate option A informed refusal method, family members oftentimes intervene and say, wait a second, why are you, my loved one, choosing to do other than what the doctor tells you? you you're, you're, you're crazy. Uh, it, it actually helps you to get, to get compliance. So the form it, it can really be a compliance enforcement tool. And then secondly, uh, if they do choose something else, you, you don't have to worry and don't have to argue. You just you, under, you can say, you understand what, what I'm telling you and why? You've signed the form. Okay, we're not doing option A. Let's go to the next best thing, knowing that, that uh, now if something bad happens from option A, you made that decision. Uh, it, you know, this form, the form that we have uh, was developed by a defense counsel in our legal department, uh, very much like I say, on the pattern of, a, of an informed consent form. But, you know, even if you don't want to use the form, you can use it in your head to document in your note if you want to. You can just use those same elements if that's your preference is to just say, I, 
The patient's competent to make the decisions. I described what I wanted to do, why I wanted to do it, what the alternatives, risks, and benefits, and he's choosing to do X. So many times we it, the shared decision-making discussion looks like, hey, I discussed it with him and he wants to go home and take care of his animals at home and it doesn't really want to be admitted today. And I'm not being facetious, that's a common situation, uh, but it looks like you're downplaying uh, the severity of what you told him. So that's, I think the form helps you to move on. Um, we don't, you know, we don't advocate that you have to use it in all scenarios. If someone, you know, refuses their statin medicine, that can be just a simple chart note. Um, but when, when there's significant uh, events that could lead to loss of life limb or, you know, severe hospitalizations, you probably really want to use that form. Yeah, and I, I really like the the idea of, I mean, there's sometimes you have to use the against medical advice, the AMA form, but that that's a cudgel, and, and it does destroy, at least the, the, the times I've used it, 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 it destroys or severely uh, impairs the physician-patient relationship. Uh, an AMA form is uh, kind of says uh, you're you're so catastrophically wrong i don't want to have anything to do with you as you make this stupid decision whereas uh the uh, uh informed refusal is more gosh i i understand what you're saying i disagree from a medical standpoint and here are the reasons here are uh why i think uh this is going to be uh not in your best interest because you could have uh, posterior circulation stroke, you could have a subarachnoid hemorrhage, this could be a catastrophic event which is impossible to predict and could be lethal. And you understand that I'm not doing this evaluation uh, even though I think it's in your best interest and you've had all these worrisome signs and then this competent person says, yes, I understand, I just can't take on the risk of that bill. Or yeah, again, very reasonably, I've got three animals at home that I'm very worried about. They can't be without me. Uh, it uh, It's a nice way to, to have that discussion and keep that relationship going so that if a few hours later uh, the patient says, gosh, I really want to get back and see that doctor. He or she was very nice to me. Uh, I think I'm ready now to, to proceed with that evaluation. So it is a bit of a nudge device. And when you when you pull the family in and they see that, you know, Dr. Limbus is a thoughtful physician having this discussion, uh, yeah, he must, Dr. Limbus must really be concerned. Uh, maybe they will push the patient to, uh, to get that care. So what are some, some other high risk scenarios? Uh, we talked about neuro and this leads to my favorite MedMal 101 uh, that that keeps on coming up, but we'll go we'll go back and forth see if we can remember these. Uh, what other types of uh, pathophysiologic symptoms might uh, warrant a nudge device like an, uh, an again? We're looking at those narrow window of opportunity presentations where um, you don't have a month later to 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 go back and, and, and redo the process. So narrow window opportunities, acute neuro events, obviously, spinal cord events, we throw, we lump in with the neuros. You know, chest pain, the old triple rule out. Um, you, don't get, you don't get a second chance on pulmonary emboli, you don't get a second chance on, on MIs and you know, impending MIs. We don't really miss MIs that much, we miss impending MIs, we miss critical acute coronary syndromes. 
Uh, and, you know, we missed aortic dissections. Uh, those oftentimes in our, in our literature, uh, you know, unfortunately, they don't present classically with intrascapular pain that migrates cephalad and is associated with, you know, all, all these other signs. It, it, it's, they don't read the textbook very well. So that's another one. Surgical abdomen is another one um, in which patients can oftentimes defer from from the appropriate workup. Uh, they don't want to be admitted for observation. The studies are non-conclusive. The surgeon, uh, you know, is is not available right away, but can see them, uh, you know, in a, in a short period of time. Those are narrow window of opportunity cases. And I think the last one is severe infectious diseases. There's obviously, we know the initiatives on early recognition and treatment of sepsis, but there's also, you know, the odd uh, deep space infections, joint infections, uh, discitis, uh, those, those kinds of things that are, don't, that don't, and necrotizing fasciitis. I think those would be the ones that we look at uh, from things that when they go bad, they go bad in a period of hours, uh, certainly not weeks, but hours and maybe a day. And the problem in those settings is you now don't have the ability to replay or, or um, and it even looks like you're manufacturing or refabricating the truth if you now go back to the chart and say, but I really told them I wanted to do X. So you know, take advantage of that one opportunity. And the informed refusal, like I say, doesn't take, it actually, from the people I know who've built it into their, some there's some EM groups that built it into their EMRs. Um, and it actually, it, 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 in their experience, it's a 60 second exercise and it's very nice to just move on. Yeah, it's a, it's a powerful form, and as Dr. Varnell will always say, with the informed consent before a procedure, the, the informed consent is the discussion, it's the interaction, uh, it's the engagement, it's the shared decision-making, and the informed refusal is the same thing. It's uh, it, it, The form memorializes it in a way which is efficient, makes it clear, uh, really helps with your record-keeping, uh, but uh, ultimately, the informed refusal is the shared decision-making discussion where you make it clear to a competent patient that, uh, gosh, I would like to do this. I'm concerned about these possibilities, and here's some substantial risks that I fear if we don't go forward with this. So uh, I like the informed consent. I think it's a great tool. I think it's so much better and uh, in any reasonable scenario than an AMA. I mean, sometimes you've got to use the AMA against medical advice form, but I think the, uh, the informed refusal uh, helps maintain that physician-patient relationship and does give everybody an out for uh, doing the evaluation uh, again in a, in a timely fashion. And I think we can put a link to that we at least have it in Word format that you can copy paste, use the elements as you need to, or just you know, put it on your letterhead. We can we can put a link to that in some fashion that's readily available to 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 people on. Uh, it's I know it's available on the Copic website, and I'm not sure uh, under the podcast uh, how you can make that resource available to them, but we can figure that out. Okay, we, we will do that. So we're going to decide this is not proprietary. We will share this with the... Absolutely, we're sharing. We are sharing. And I, I've shared with other companies. I've shared with CMOs from other groups. I, I think it's a... 
I actually think it's a concept that who's we've heard about shared decision making. We've heard about those. Uh, uh, we, you know, informed consent has been around for decades. Uh, AMA has been around for decades, and I, I think informed refusal is something that uh, uh, different specialties use use it more often. But I think is something that if we do it well and it becomes a manner, it would be helpful for patients and hospitals and physicians and other providers uh, to, to, you know, to preserve physician-patient relationships and get the right decisions made. And then when patients choose not to do that, you know, they have the right to do that as well and we can move on. Yeah, well, sounds sounds like a valuable tool. I was going to make, uh, try to come up with some way to link it to a paywall that goes directly to my account, but I like the idea of making it uh, open source instead. <laughs> That's much more magnanimous, Alan. So, uh, thanks for uh, for joining me on this uh, podcast discussion. I think that's useful information about informed refusal. And if you have a last word to take it to, to take us out, I will uh, let you uh, end the podcast. Uh, other than just, I think AMAs are used very rarely, and I think if you lump informed refusal in with AMA, you will use it infrequently and it won't help you or your patients that much. I think it's a totally different tool and a different mindset. And I think when people get more accustomed to that discussion, um, it, it really helps and it can help even in the office setting where you come to a standstill and you just do the form, memorialize what you want to do. And when they choose, people choose knowingly not to do that, you just move on to the next plan. It, it, it takes away some of that. It preserves your relationship and it takes away some of that angst that providers has, have in, in dealing with difficult people. I lied. I'm having the last word. I love the I love the uh, informed uh, refusal uh, form. So uh, uh, it is a totally different tool than, than AMA. And it does uh, it does work with shared decision making. Very powerful tool. So, Alan, thank you for joining us on Within Normal Limits. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Susan Scambotti, a colorectal surgeon and medical director of Copic, thanking you for being a listener. We hope you find Within Normal Limits to be interesting and informative as we at Copic continue with new ways to bring you content relevant to our mission. Please email us at wnlpodcast at copic.com with show ideas or topics you would like to see addressed in future episodes of Within Normal Limits, Navigating Medical Risk. Also, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you don't miss any of our content. And while you're at it, please give us a rating if you enjoyed our show.